I muted myself even though I was just speaking. Can't chew gum and walk, and boy, this morning is going to, I'm going to need to be able to chew gum and walk, let me tell you that. Daniel 11 is no joke. Uh, Many of you came in and and you sat on a piece of paper. Um, If you get lost this morning, this will help you get more lost. Um, if, If you're new this morning, you came on one of the most hardest passages of Scripture to, uh, exegete. So if you fall asleep, yeah, I understand fully. Um, anyways, God is so good. It's good to be in his word together. If you would please join me by opening up to the book of Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. As you make your way there, if, uh, if you were with us this last Sunday, Uh, We covered one of the most amazing passages of Scripture, Daniel chapter 10. And if you missed last Sunday's message, I would highly encourage you to go ahead and check it out online. We've got audio or video archives of it. Um, Chapter 10 takes place in the third year of Cyrus, uh, king of Persia's rule, uh, where we find that it is during the time of Daniel, and Daniel has, has been mourning for 21 days about the future of Israel. And on the 21st day, the Lord appears to uh, Daniel in the Christophany. I believe it's uh, the Lord appearing to Daniel at first there in chapter 10. And then an angel appears, the angel that was sent to answer Daniel's prayer. And that angel begins to explain how he brought the message to Daniel after God dispatched him uh, with a word for Daniel. But this angel was delayed. I'm, I'm paraphrasing crazily here. But this angel was, was delayed in delivering the message because he was confronted by a demon called the prince of the king of Persia. It's a very powerful demon. And so as Daniel persisted and prayed in, in prayer for 21 days, finally in the spiritual realm, Michael, another power, seemingly more powerful angel, an archangel we find out, comes and helps break this other angel free from this demon. And this angel now is able to appear to Daniel and deliver a message. And that's what he says. And basically at the end of Daniel 10, he says, hey, I've got to go back to fight this prince of Persia, because after him, there's going to come the prince of Greece, and so on and so forth. And so Basically, we get this beautiful opening into the spiritual realm of what happens as God's will uh, is, is going about, that there's an angelic fight between angels and ge- demons and our prayers and how all that works. We went into that quite in depth last week. I would encourage you, again, to go back and check that out. But it ended, ch- we didn't pick up uh, chapter 11, verse 1, which is really a tie-in to the end of chapter 10, because the angel is basically just saying, hey, listen, I've been doing this all alone. I've been fighting the prince of Persia all alone, all these guys. But, and he goes, he says, but Michael came and helped me. But in chapter 11, verse 1 says, and as for me in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him, not Darius, but Michael. In other words, these two are working together in the spiritual realm to make things happen. So uh, that was three or four years prior to what we're reading in Daniel 10. And by the way, Daniel 10, 11, and 12 are the last section. It's all kind of one giant prophecy. But if you remember, there's that spiritual battle going on in the heavenlies, and so it's, it's pretty awesome. Now, in chapter 11, it's one of the most, con- it's most complicated and controversial passages of Scripture. There's just no way about it. Um, I've spent hours poring over history, refreshing my mind on history, and learning new history and relearning history. It's been, it's been quite amazing. But the, chapter 11 is so 
um, is so accurately, a, well, let me put it this way. Chapter, in chapter 11, this angel tells Daniel what's going to happen to Israel over a period of maybe the next 500 years, but particularly in a 200-year period coming up for them. And it's so accurate, it's so detailed, so accurate, that those who read it after the fact, after the fact it happened, go, no, this was written after the fact, and that's higher criticism, and you can talk to Brother Gary about all that if you want to, and get into that. I'm not going to waste our time on, on all that stuff that's been regurgitated to uh, people. But those prophecies were so accurate, as we'll see, that it's just, it's just amazing. And what this is a testimony to is that God, who is outside of time and space, one of the ways that he shows us that he is God is that he tells the end from the beginning. It's nothing for him to see across the scope of time, to know everything that is going to happen or that happened or will happen. He knew you when you were born and he knows you when you're, when you're gone. Uh, he is God. And one of the ways he shows us these God is he, is he brings these prophecies and say, listen, this is what is going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened to Daniel here. This angel comes and brings this message to Daniel. And so, as we kind of look at this, this uh, glimpse into, um, into uh, chapter 11, I want to give you the big picture that's going to help us as we go. Um, I gave you the piece of paper. I'm not going to be following the piece of paper. That's for you in case you get lost in names and I don't get them right and all that good stuff. That's just for you. But basically the prophecies of chapter 11 through verse 35 mainly speak of two kingdoms. They're talking about two kingdoms, the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. Those are the two kingdoms it's, it's speaking about. And it's speaking about them in a specific gap of time. In the beginning of chapter uh, 11, it'll, it'll talk a little bit about um, uh, Xerxes, and then it goes into Alexander the Great. But then it funnels down to two kingdoms. And these two kingdoms are basically warring back and forth with, from, with one another over a couple hundred year period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a time we don't have any, new, any writings on. Um, and so that's what's going to be going on. The kingdom of the north is going to be fighting the kingdom of the south during this whole time. And keep that in mind, according to Daniel 10, when Daniel receives this prophecy, it's about 535 B.C. Remember, I, I don't know about how many of you are a little dyslexic when it comes to B.C., A.D., all that type of stuff. Yeah, so if we're talking about B.C., we're counting up, we're counting down to when Christ comes. And then now we're in A.D., we're 2,021 years after the birth of Christ, so we're counting away. So we're going to be counting down in this whole section here as I, if I do make references. But it's 535 B.C., somewhere around there, when Daniel's receiving these prophecies. It's 535 years until Jesus is born. Does that make sense? So remember that before Christ was born, we, we count down and then we count away. And so Daniel gets this prophecy. And about 150 years later, closer to the birth of Christ, we reach that 400-year period. 400 years where the, the Old Testament closes and the New Testament has yet to come for another 400 years. And it's during this time between the Old Testament and the New Testament um, uh, that we get verses basically th uh, 3 through 35 of chapter 11, okay? That's the time period of what's going on. And so that handout will help you kind of see a little bit if you're a history buff and you want to do that. You want to go for that. So keep that in mind. 
that the events that we're reading about right now, basically verse 3 through 35, they are all future for Daniel. They have yet to come for Daniel. They are all history for us. They're in the history books. Future for Daniel, history for us. Keep that in mind as we're reading. And so what we have the advantage of doing is that as we go through these verses, I'm able to share with you what actual historical events line up with what is being said here. Pretty cool, huh? We're going to get lost, and it'll be fun. And so this prophecy basically seeks to lay out the events of the next several hundred years for the people of Israel. And that's what this is concerning, the people of Israel. What's going to be for your people? You've been in bondage for 70 years. Now you've got 490 years, 77s. We won't get into all that right now. But when you go back to Jerusalem, what's it going to be like? And he's basically going to tell them, hey, there's going to be a war between the king of the north of Israel and the north of Israel and the south. And guess who in the middle? Who's in the middle of the north and the south of Israel? Israel. And they're going to just get conquered by one and conquered by the other, and you're going to see this going back and forth. So this is what they have to look forward to. So let's pick up the beginning of verse 2 of Daniel, chapter 11. So it says in verse 2, the angel says to Daniel, And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And so this angel finally is delivering the message. And in verse 2, he says there's going to be three more rulers and then a fourth. Three more rulers of, of Persia. Basically, it, it, they do come about, it's about 535 B.C. And Cyrus is now ruling the Medo-Persian Empire. And this angel says three more are coming. And they did. You can read about them in history. I have a footnote here I'm not going to go over. But the angel then focused on a fourth Persian ruler who would come. And he would be rich and powerful because of his riches. And, and he will rise up against Greece. This fourth, this fourth prince, this fourth king that comes up is, is Xerxes. Xerxes I. If you remember in the book of Esther, Esther um, that Esther becomes the queen of a king named Ahasuerus. This is Xerxes, same guy, That's Xerxes being his title. And Xerxes is important to the Jews because remember what happened under Xerxes to the Jews? A guy named Haman comes up and decides to plot to annihilate all the Jews, and it's Esther who stands up and says, you know, for a time such as this, and the plot is unfolded, and Haman gets destroyed. So that's pretty amazing. But it says in verse 2 that this fourth king would attack Greece, and that's the important thing, and, and he did in about 480 B.C. Remember, we're counting towards the cross or towards the birth of Jesus. And he was quite successful in his second evasion of Greece, even getting to the point where he can sack Athens. Remember, Greece is coming on the scene. They're becoming more powerful at this time. Remember, uh, if you remember back in Daniel chapter uh, 2, is it? You got the vision of the different kingdoms that would come. First, the head of gold, who was the Babylonians. Well, they've been conquered by the next kingdom, the Persians. Well, the next kingdom was going to come, which is the kingdom of Greece. And so we hear, see here that Persia is attacking Greece, who is rising up on the scene. They have some, basically, they have some success there. And these, by the way, are the Greco-Persian Wars. How many of you are going, yeah, I remember that in history? 
you got the Battle of Marathon, and you've got Leonidas and all that kind of stuff going on, and the Spartans and all that. But then we see in verse 3, Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do his will. Who's the next major king after the Persians to come up? Who is that guy? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great comes on. If you remember at the, uh, if you remember at the end of chapter 10, verse 20, read, the angel said, But now I'll return and fight the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. And along with that demonic power will come a ruler that he is influencing and all of that. The prince of Greece, this very powerful man, this king will come, and his name was Alexander the Great. And he became king in 336 B.C. And then it goes, he goes on to defeat the Persians and basically conquers the whole known world. And, and so Daniel's told there there's going to be four kings. The kings of Persia, the fourth one's going to be great. He's going to attack Greece, but then a king of Greece will arise and the king of Greece is going to come and he's going to actually just basically be awesome. But it says there in verse 4 that as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of the heaven. But not his posterity, nor according to the authority which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. And that's what happened. We remember, we've already gone over this in Daniel chapter 8. Remember that? The horn of the ram got broken and then four horns came out of it, symbolizing the four kingdoms of Greece. And that's what happened. Alexander died at 33 in Babylon, and then his kingdom was divided after basically 20 years of infighting, all this stuff. It wasn't divided into his family because they got all, all got murdered. It got divided among four generals. Four generals. And these four generals are the four winds there. They're the four empires of Greece with four leaders. And now from basically verses 5 through 20, this is going to talk about basically two of these four kingdoms, Okay. The kingdom of the south, which is the Ptolemaic kingdom after General Ptolemy. So that would be the region of Egypt. And then another kingdom that's in focus here in verses 5 through 20 is the kingdom of the north, which is the Seleucid kingdom. Ptolemy in the south, Egypt, uh, and then Seleucid in the north, which is um, it's just Syria, basically. And these two kingdoms war back and forth. And by the way, it's much more complicated than Egypt and Syria. They've got lands that they're going back and forth. I'm not going to get into all that. Sparing you the history. But with Israel's in between all both of them during this whole time, okay? And so verse 5 says, Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger, and he shall rule, and his authority shall be a greater authority. So forgetting about two of these kingdoms, they're focusing just on these two that are significant to Israel. And it says the king of the south the Ptolemies out of Egypt are going to be stronger at first, but what happens is that soon after, the northern kingdom becomes stronger. The Seleucids become more powerful. And if you, if you have two powerful kingdoms, basically, and, and you basically want to, um, and you, you want to make sure that you have peace between your kingdoms, what's what way of doing it? Through an alliance of marriage. And that's, a, that's kind of what happened here. Verse 6 says, After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north and make an agreement. And so that actually happened in history. The king of the north at the time was King Antiochus II. Theos, he called himself, so God, that's great. Um, basically, he divorced his wife, 
so the king of the north divorces, divorces his wife, uh, Laodis, and, and, and married the daughter of the king of the south to have this alliance. He marries the daughter of the king of the, of the south named Berenice. And her father is the king of the south. His, was, his name was Ptolemy. And so the king of the north divorces his wife, marries the king of the south for this alliance. But guess what the divorced wife of the king of the north does? She's just like, oh yeah, that's is great. That's fine. No, sorry, uh, we're, we're, that's not going to be fine. She basically, she murders Bernice, and then, and then her baby son, and then she poisons Antiochus, her, her husband. So, I mean, this is, this is going on here. And even Bernice's attendants die in all this. There, it's just everybody dies. So this woman has vengeance, and then she puts her son on the throne. It's, it's pretty wild. And so that's what the verse, the rest of verse 6 says. It says, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. That's Bernice. She's going to die. And he, and he and his arm shall not endure. That's the king, Antiochus in the north. He's going to die. He's not going to live. But she shall, be given, uh, she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her, he in those times. And so the ex-wife of the king of the north murders everybody, and eventually her son, Seleucid II, takes over. See, that this is, this, i got to teach you this. It's here. It's fun. It's complicated, but here we are. So now regarding the murder of Bernice. So Bernice in the north gets murdered, right? Well, verse 7 says, And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. Not in the place of Bernice, but he shall rise up. And he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. And so what happened is that out of the branch of, the, of her roots, meaning a relative of hers, Bernice, someone's going to rise up. And it was actually her brother. Her brother, her father had died in the meantime. Her brother rises up to be king. And so Ptolemy III, Eugates, uh, something like that, of Egypt, he took over after Bernice's father uh, dies, and her brother attacks the north and defeats them. Pretty cool. Uh, verse 8, And he shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metals, uh, metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Pause. Who's in the middle of all of this? Israel, who's marching their armies through Jerusalem every single time this happens? Israel. Whoever wins gets control of Israel. That's what's going on. So the angel's letting Daniel know, this is your history, guys. This is exactly how it's going to play out. Imagine if we're, we're here in the United States, <clears throat> and someone 250 years ago, or 500 years ago, goes, there's going to be this country, United States, and there's going to be two parts to it, and then they just go ahead and tell our, 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 our nation's history, the major pieces of it, all the way through for 200 years. That's what's going on here. Just absolutely astounding. And so all of this stuff, down to people, wives killing kings and all this type of stuff, is, is being recorded here. The king of the north finally comes back and he attacks he, gets, he kind of gets revenge for his sister. And then verse 9 says, then he, and he refrains from attacking the king of the north for a while. Then verse 9 says, Then uh, the latter shall come into the realm of the king and the, kingdom of the, and the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. And so what happens next is that after being attacked by the south and being ransacked, the north, after a while, gathers an army 
under Callinicus, that's the son of the divorced woman who took over in the north. Um, he comes and tries to attack the south, but he fails. He was beaten at, at that battle in 240 BC and returns home. And verse 9 says, and just a footnote for you, Callinicus, this king of the north, the son of the divorced woman, he falls off his horse and dies at some point. So that's just fun for us to know. Be careful when you're riding a horse. Well, the north didn't stop. Just because he fell off his horse and died, the north didn't stop. It says, verse 10, His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflowing and pass through and shall again carry the war as far as his fortress. And so they just are going to trample through the uh, area of Israel. And so after Callinicus, the king of Seleucid, falls off his horse and dies, his sons take up the cause. But one of his sons dies. And the other one becomes king. This would be Antiochus III, which is Antiochus the Great, okay? We're getting closer to Antiochus Epiphanes. So Antiochus the Great rises up. And so Antiochus the Great with 75,000 soldiers marches south, attacks Egypt, pushes them back out of Syria, basically, through Israel, all the way to the southern border of Israel. And he was going to keep on going to Egypt. But verse 11 says, Then the king of the south moved with rage and shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And so the king of the south, this is Ptolemy the fourth at this time, uh, Philopater, uh, he raises a huge army. He's got like 73,000 men and 5,000 cavalry and, 70, and, and 73 elephants. I mean, just like one elephant's pretty cool, but 73 elephants. And so the king of the south, it, com it comes out and crushes that army that Antiochus the Great sent. And verse 12 says of the king of the south after this victory, and when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. In other words, the king of the south's victory will be brief. Even though he had that great victory in that, that battle, it's going to be brief. And although we are told by historian Polybius uh, uh, that the South had killed basically 10,000 of the Norse and uh, Norse uh, men and, and 300, foot, uh, 300 cavalry and five war elephants of the North, it didn't stop the North, basically. Thirteen years later, uh, Antiochus the Great, he attacks again. So he remusters his forces and he attacks again. Verse 13, For the king of the North shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come out on with a great army and abundant supplies. And in those times many shall rise against the king of the south. And the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision. But they shall veil. And so in this attack many arose against the king of the south. Meaning that everyone that hated the south they joined in. And what's in particular view here is the lawbreakers of Israel... The ones who really didn't care about keeping the covenant, they were more mercenaries. They were tired of being oppressed by the South, who had ruled their area for so long. They, a lot of them joined up. They are the violent men spoken of, of Daniel's people. They rise up and they join the fight. And they were thinking in this that, hey, if we can join in and win, we, we'll get our independence. If we can just rise up and join on with this army that's coming down there to attack things, then, then maybe we'll be free from the south. We are so tired of the south ruling us. We are sick of them. That's what was going on. But what happened in actuality is that they just traded one master for another. 
That's what happened because the North would actually would go and prevail. They would win that fight as they went south. Verse 15, and when they did, the king of the North shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the South shall not stand, or even his best troops, for they shall be no, there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and no one shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. So Antiochus the Great, or Antiochus the Third, took control of Israel. He beat the South, but now he has control of Israel. The Jewish mercenaries thought they were going to get their independence, but actually they traded one tyrant for another. Keep that in mind. Life lesson. And it says, and destruction was coming. He had destruction in his hand. In verse 17, and he shall set his face to come with strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. Now, after defeating the south, Antiochus the Great feels pressure from Rome. Okay, Rome is rising on the scene now. Remember, the fourth beast is going to come along. Uh, Greece has already come, and it's starting to wane, and now Rome is starting to come, that fourth beast spoken of by, An- by Daniel. Rome is pressuring Antiochus the Great to make peace with the south. And so, verse 18, he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand to be to his advantage. And so after defeating the south, Antiochus the Great, he gives his daughter named Cleopatra, not the Cleopatra we all know of, Mark Antony and all that stuff. She comes 100 years later. So gives Cleopatra to uh, King Ptolemy in the south, King Ptolemy V. But his intent in giving his, this, his daughter to the king of the south was not, hey, let's have peace. Remember, he's being forced by Rome. And so he goes ahead and puts his, his daughter over there thinking that he, he'll have a spy in the capital down there and that she'll work with him to undermine anything that's going on down there. But what do you think happened? Four-letter word, love. She fell in love with that king. So... <laughs> Bummer, huh? He's like, I wish I had a spy. So she falls in love with, with this king and they're all in love and all that stuff. And so no sabotage, no spying, nothing. Is in The king of the north, Antiochus, is just upset. And so basically he gets upended there. And so Antiochus the Great, his plan fails in doing this. And verse 18 says, Well, after he shall return his face to the coastlands, and he shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him, and then he shall turn his face back towards the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. And what happens is Antiochus the Great had decided that after conquering Egypt, after sending his, his, uh, his uh, daughter down there, marrying off to the king of the south, that he would attack Greece, specifically along the Mediterranean coast. But what happens is that He's coming into conflict with Rome because Rome has now taken over a lot of these places in, the, in, in that area, Asia Minor and Turkey and all that. And so this, this causes a, a battle to happen between uh, the Romans and Antiochus the Great. And this is one of those famous things. This is around 190, 191 B.C. And so a Roman named uh, Lucius Scipio uh, Sciaticus, I'm going to call him, no. <laughs> Bane in your leg. 
uh, defeated Antiochus the Great in the Battle of uh, Manganesa, uh, which ended the Seleucid Dominion or the Northern Dominion of Asia Minor in modern-day Turkey. And so this defeat caused a treaty. And in that treaty, um, Seleucid, uh, the Seleucid Kingdom, Antioch in the north, had to now give, one, give his son to go ahead and be a captor in Rome. He had to be a prisoner in Rome. And he had to start paying tons of, of taxes and stuff. And so this, this treaty actually caused Antiochus to go back home. And, and then he, because he had to pay all these taxes, he tried to plunder a temple, apparently, in his own kingdom. And then they killed him for, for coming in the temple and plundering him for all the riches. And so this stuff is going on. Uh, I'm going to skip over a lot of that. But now we come to verse 20. And this is the shift, Okay. I know. If you guys are having fun, imagine how much I had fun studying this. So, <laughs> then shall arise in this place one shall send, who shall send an exactor of tribute from the, the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken neither in anger nor battle. And so basically what happens is another king arises, a ruler took Antiochus III's place, uh, who, is a, who is a raiser of taxes. They're, under, they're having to pay tribute to Rome now. This is Seleucus uh, the uh, fourth, I believe. And he taxed his subjects so heavily that they, he eventually, they eventually poisoned him pretty quickly. So, you know, people don't like taxes. Well, apparently they do these days. So, um, verse 21. And in his, in his place shall rise a contemptible person. This is where the shift is. In his place shall rise a contemptible person, a vile person, an evil person, to whom royal majesty has not been given. And he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And here we're reintroduced for us who have been here for a while to Antiochus IV, otherwise known as Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus, as he likes to call himself, God manifested. Remember a few weeks ago in Daniel 8, we, how we saw that Antiochus, this guy, is a prototype of the Antichrist. And what we read here in verse 21 is he's called a contemptible person. Uh, he was cruel beyond measure to the Jews. And Daniel's saying, if you thought all the wars going back and forth were bad to this point, wait till this guy gets on the scene. When this guy gets on the scene, it is going to be very, very bad. He's going to come without warning, and he gets his throne through flattery. And so basically, there's a lot of shenanigans going on. But Antiochus, Epiphanes, God manifested he was a political prisoner in Rome from that treaty, and basically um, his brother was ruling in his father's place after he died, and then basically um, his brother gets murdered, and then, uh, well, what did he say? His son, basically, his, uh, if I'm getting lost, you're going to get lost. So his father, his father's died, his older brother took the throne, and Antiochus was then freed in exchange for his, his nephew, his brother's son, who was on the throne. And then his brother was assassinated. So Antiochus finds the opportunity to go back, and he kind of flatters people, pays people off, or does a bunch of stuff, and he now takes the throne. It wasn't his. It was the guy in Rome's. And then he goes and, mur and has that nephew murdered. So there's just a lot going on there, but he's not a good guy. Verse 22 says, And armies shall be utterly stepped away before him, even the prince of the covenant. So Antiochus is going to be a mighty military person, and he does. He absolutely crushes Egypt. And then 
also, he goes ahead and instates his own high priest in Jerusalem. He, he, he goes ahead and takes out, he murders a good high priest and then puts in a fault, his own high priest who's, who's, uh, who's obviously uh, very, uh, he's just going to do whatever he wants. He's a puppet high priest is, is what he is. In verse 23 says, And from that time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province that's, that is in Egypt. And he, shall, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder. He gives away the plunder he takes, spoil and goods in some regard. And, and, he, and he shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for the time. And so there, at this time, there's a power struggle in the south in Egypt, everybody. There's a power struggle in the south, and he takes advantage of that by going ahead and, and saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join up, I'm going to lie with one of these guys who wants to take the throne of Egypt. And so while he does that, he takes advantage of this one king acting like he's a friend, and he slips in with small people and starts attacking all the, the rich places around there. So this guy's real sly. And this leads to more war. Verse 25, and he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great army, but shall not stand for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. So Antiochus attacks the king of the south, the one he had aligned with. He aligns with him and then he attacks him after he steals all the stuff around him. This is how this guy is. He's not, he doesn't hold his word. He attacks, and then in return, this guy reattacks, but he loses. And so a large part of Egypt is now under Antiochus' control, except for Alexandria. He didn't get that part. And his captured king, King Ptolemy VI, meets with the other king that was disputed there in Egypt, King Ptolemy VII. They happen to be brothers, and they have this powwow. And verse 27 says of this meeting, As for the two kings, the kings of the south, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be appointed in time. And so because Antiochus didn't want to upset Rome, he tries to reinstate the one he had just conquered back into the throne. And so now you've got a problem because Egypt, how are they going to like that? How many of you guys like foreign people telling you, hey, this is your king? Right? So that's the problem they're having now. So there's this duality going on. And so he goes ahead and sets him up as a, as a puppet king, so to speak. And what happened is when he left, this puppet king was ruling from Memphis. But what happens is as soon as he leaves, the people of Egypt go ahead and elect his brother as the king in Alexandria. And so now these two kings, what happens is is that soon after he leaves, the, the, they, uh, instead of having a civil war between each other, they decide to co-rule Egypt because they both hate Antiochus, Antiochus so much. So they just like, oh, this guy is worse. Let's, not, let's get along, brother. You rule from Memphis. I'll rule from Alexandria. And, and we'll just, we're actually going to call Rome and see if they can help us out. And that's kind of what happens. They end up lying to Antiochus at this meeting. So Antiochus leaves Egypt the spoils of war, and then verse 28. And this is where we're, we're honing in here. We're only going to verse 35, and we're going to go through this quickly. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his, wor his will and return to his own land. So Antiochus Epiphanes, 
Antiochus IV, after defeating Egypt, and after meeting, after this meeting, he's on his way back north with all these spoils and all these riches, and he gets to Jerusalem and he finds a revolt going on. See, Jerusalem didn't have, they weren't, they didn't have like the AP going on, they didn't have the news going on. They thought he lost in the south. And so they go, we're getting rid of your, your high priest and we're putting in our guy back in. Well, he gets to town and guess what happens? Yeah, right. And so history tells us that he massacres 80,000 men. He takes 40,000 people prisoner. He sells 40, additional 40,000 as slaves. And he stopped the Jews from reinstating their own priest and made sure that things were up to snuff, basically. And so Antiochus decimates Jerusalem. He works his will, and then he makes his way home, but not for long, verse 29. And at the, at the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be uh, this time as it was before. He's going to attack Egypt for the third time. But this time it's not going to work because the two kings called Rome. Rome didn't, Rome didn't want him to attack him the first time, but they were busy fighting someone else. And so he took advantage of that. Now Rome is back. And we find out why this wasn't successful in 168 B.C. For ships, verse 30, of Kittim, that is Cyprus or Rome, shall come against him and he shall be afraid and withdraw and he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. So Roman ships had joined and fortified Egypt against Antiochus. And there's a story in history where he's on the shore kind of talking with the opposite Roman general or whoever it was, and he's deciding whether or not he, they're parling. He's deciding whether or not he wants to continue attacking them or not. He's thinking it over, and the Roman general the guy, draws a circle around him and says, you're making your decision before you exit the circle. And so he was pretty afraid of Rome. Rome be, is becoming extremely powerful by this point. And so he decides, oh, okay, I'm not going to fight these guys. I'm pretty terrified about losing what I have, and he goes home, just as the scriptures say. And so he was enraged at this. He was frustrated with this, and what does he do? Verse 30, he shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Back there in verse, the end of verse 30, and he shall turn back and be enraged and take against action against the holy covenant. He's going to take out his frustration on the Jews, as he makes his way back out, back north. That's what happens. And this means, in verse 29, and the first part of that phase is basically, he starts to conspire with those Jews who aren't really Jews, who are mercenaries. He starts to conspire with them, give them some of his spoils and all this stuff, start paying them off with flattery and all this type of stuff. And then what happens is, very shortly after that, verse 31 happens. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offerings. And so Antiochus just takes out his frustration on Jerusalem. Again, his soldiers, along with those apostate Jews, they stopped the sacrifices. They put soldiers around the temple. They stopped all the sacrifices. You can no longer worship. They stopped the people from worshiping. On the Sabbath, they would just randomly slaughter all the children they could find. And, men, and women, obviously, and men, but mostly children. And then he builds a sports arena, a sports complex. We already talked about this. A Greek 
sports complex, basically, right in sight of the, of the temple grounds and where people are, are competing naked. And he makes false worship mandatory. Not only does he say you cannot worship, he says you must worship. See, this is a, a prototype of the Antichrist, of what he is going to do when he comes on the scene. And at the end of verse 31, it says, and they shall set up an abomination that makes desolate. Antiochus erects a statue of Zeus in the temple. And on the altar, he sacrifices a pig. And how many of you know that pigs are like the most unclean thing for Jews, right? And so he takes the most unclean thing and puts them in the most holy place and sacrifices it. And then he takes the meat of it and shoves it down the priest's throat. So just total desecration is what's going on here. And this is what the Antichrist will do in the last days that is yet for us. By the way, that's verses 36 to the end of the chapter, which we'll get to next week. But verse 32 says, And he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, meaning Antiochus was able to seduce and persuade the Jews to abandon the covenant, to embrace Greek life and the false worship and all that. Imagine the persecution that has come to the Jews. And all these people who are, you know, we, yeah, we go to temple on Saturday, we go to temple on Saturday, we go to temple on Saturday. It's like, I'm not going to temple on Saturday. I'm not having my kids killed. I'm not doing all this stuff. Forget God. I'm going to go down to the Colosseum. I'm going to live. I'm going to survive. They just abandon God. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the end of verse 32 says, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Boy. Those days came for these people. And it revealed a lot about who they were. This is where the true Israel comes into view. Paul talks about this a little bit. There's the Israel who says that they're Israel, but then there's the true Israel. There were Jews, and then there were those who were really Jews, those who knew their God and who stood firm and took action, meaning they didn't compromise. They did what was honoring to God regardless of the consequences. And this action here, also many think that is talking about a guy named Judas Maccabeus with the Maccabean revolt, uh, revolt which is... In First and Second Maccabees, some of you grew up Catholic or some of you have an ancient Protestant Bible where you have the book of Maccabees in the middle of there. You're wondering, what is that? That's Jewish history in between the Old and New Testament. Talks about a lot of this stuff. Not the Bible, but pretty cool to read through. Again, this victory that resulted from the Maccabean revolt, these people stood out. They said, we're done with this. We're not going to have this. They stood up. They revolted. They fought back and kicked out the Seleucids from that area, from Antiochus. And what happened is they cleansed the temple. And again, this is why, they, why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. They're looking back to that time that the temple was cleansed. That's what's going on there. Pretty important 
to the Jewish, uh, the Jews, you know? That could be this. But verse 33 says, And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by the sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. And when they stumble, they shall receive little help. A little help. And, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. The angel's telling Daniel, when this all comes along, when this, when this, when this happens, those who stand firm are going to die. Many are going to die through flame, through the sword. Many are going to be pillaged and plundered. Many of them are going to become captives. There's, it's just not going to be easy for those who are wise, those who know their God. Difficult times are coming upon Israel, the true Israel. Difficult times were ahead for the nation of Israel. But what is the purpose of all this pain and suffering? What is the purpose of all this? Verse 35, And some of the wise shall stumble. They'll die. So that they may be what? Refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. It's through suffering and through hardship and persecution that the Jews are refined here and purified and made white until the end. Remember, the Jews are allotted another 70 weeks of judgment. Remember that? That's what's happening. And during this time, God's going to be refining them. And this suffering is going to burn away complacency in some, and it's going to reveal apostasy in others. But for those who are wise, those who believe, this will have eternal rewards. And that will happen at the end of time, at, at the end of this, at the time of the end which is yet to come for them. And so the angel says in verse 35, this is going to be the way it's going to be until the time of the end. What is the time of the end? The last week of Daniel. Until the Antichrist comes. And it's right here that we now jump forward in time and it starts to disassociate totally with this time period and it jumps forward to that last kingdom and that last place and that last time with a different Antiochus, the Antichrist. And we're going to pick that up next week. So a lot of history here. I'm sorry uh, for some of you who are going, oh gosh, that was, didn't know I was going to come to history class. Hard times were coming for the Jews. And these times would separate the sheep from the goats. Let's pray. Father, the world spins at your command. The pages of history roll out according to your will. Lord, you allow these things to come together for your purposes and your glory, which are beyond our understanding. And Lord, when we see a glimpse into your word here of, of, of what you will do, 
for what you were going to do in Israel. We see it come to pass. We can take confidence that those things that you say that are yet to come will come about exactly as you said they will happen. Father, may your church be those who are wise. May your church be the, are those who, are the, who know our God and stand firm. May your church be those who are willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. Lord, keep us from being those who would be like the apostate Jews who decided to make things happen one way or those who would join themselves to the pagan culture because of, of the fear of what might happen to them now. Lord, we, we place our lives in your hands. We, we do ask for your protection for us and our kids, but Lord, refine us. Make us know without a doubt that we are yours and, and you are ours. If anything that these times we've been in have, have done, they've, they've shown where our affections lie, God, that we've been in. Lord, cleanse us and bring us close to you. Closer, Lord Jesus, in these times. Closer, not further. Closer to another, one another, not further. More love as we see the day approaching. Forgive us of our selfishness, Lord, and our tendency towards these things. And so, Lord, be glorified in your church this morning. And may your will be done and your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.